Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome back to another episode of Cutting the Distance. I've been following today's guest for about the past four years or so, and uh, I've got to watch his skill set, his knowledge base, and success kind of blossom into something that is truly impressive. Um, I have a ton of respect for him, Samong Yang. Uh, he's from my home state of Washington and owns Samong Outdoors YouTube channel where he documents his journeys and educates viewers along the way. Uh, in my opinion, he's wise beyond his years. Um, he's a young man that is well-spoken and versed, and he's a great asset to the hunting community and kind of showing what we're all about as well as uh, reaching future hunters. So I'm, I'm really um, stoked to have him here on the show. Welcome to the show, Samong. Dude, thank you so much, Jason. It's an honor to be on this podcast. I have to ask how old you are. I don't even know how old you are, but I, I'm going to ask that one to start with. Yeah, I'm 25, born and raised, and currently still living in Spokane, Washington. Gotcha. Uh, your little background, what, what got you started um, in hunting? Um, is it like the, you know, the rest of us that it was kind of passed down um, you know, through the lineage and, and from one generation to another? Or kind of what's your backstory there? Yeah, that's pretty much it. You know, simply put, I don't know my life without hunting. It's, uh, it's always been something that I've done. And uh, when I was born, my dad had already established hunting in the household. So I was born right into it, and it's just stuck ever since. Yeah, real, real similar, you know, to, to our story. It's like I, I, nobody can remember, you know, up to a generation where we didn't hunt, um, you know, or we didn't hunt for food um, in my family. So, so real similar. And then, um, you know, you took your, your family's passion for hunting and kind of that lifestyle. Um, and similar to what a lot of us do, you wanted to start to share that experience um, with others. Um, you know, you picked up a video camera. Um, in my opinion, you do a very good job of sharing your adventures. But what kind of got you into filming those and wanting to share those um, adventures? Kind of what, what sparked that? 
Yeah, the the very start of it is like way back in like 2011 when I first received an iPod Touch for Christmas, and it wasn't anything fancy. But you know, grow up growing up in the 90s, you know, social media, none of this stuff existed. So like having a camera was just like you're on cloud nine. So I was like what 14 years old when I got this iPod Touch, and I figured out that there was a camera on this thing, and I just found that it was like the coolest thing to be able to take pictures and record stuff and just be able to watch it back. So back around this time. I really had no interest in filming my hunting and fishing stuff. It was just, I was just filming whatever. And we were actually raising like backyard chickens back then. And so that's primarily what I did. I just went out and I just filmed my chickens, basically washed them from the moment they were hatched to when they were grown up. And I just thought it was the coolest thing to be able to watch what your chicks used to be and then watch them grow up to what they looked like in adulthood. And so that wasn't even really hunting. That was just the idea of where I got started with filming. And then this is also around the time when YouTube really started to pick up. And, you know, naturally, I, like I said, I was uh, born and raised into hunting. So naturally, you just want to start watching hunting videos on YouTube. And I think I think you can attest to this. Uh, back then, there was like hunting videos and hunting channels all over the Western states besides Washington. Like I, I struggled to find any videos on YouTube that showcased Washington hunts. You always had Utah, like those limited entry Mossback videos way back yep. then. Yep. And so the one channel that I came across very at the very beginning was actually Prime Primetime Outdoors by none other than Jason Phelps. <laughs> You're digging way, way back into the past and the, the history. But yeah, um, that, that's that's cool because we didn't know how many people we were reaching or, or what we we're even doing back then. We started back in you know, 2007. And it was just some buddies that got some, you know, some video cameras, some mini DV cameras and just started like over the shoulder, no production quality, you know, but, uh, no, that's funny to hear. Yeah, it's funny, but then like, that's actually like how it's kind of started for me, right? Like you basically like long story short, what you did back then when you were still active on primetime outdoors, you basically did what I did, right? You just went over the state of Washington. You just filmed whatever you were hunting, deer, black bear, turkey, and stuff like that. But as we all know, if they're they're familiar with it, you kind of just stopped, right? Yep. And so yep. when you stopped, it's just like there was no more Washington hunts. And so I was like, well, if nobody's really doing it. I, and I was like, well, I really want to watch Washington hunts. So why don't I just start, right? Yeah. And so soon after that, I started uh, following this man by the name of John Wake, which today he's known as Northwest Spur Chasers. And I found out through his channel because he's actually like probably the biggest turkey hunter in my neck of the woods, Northeast Washington. Yep. And I, like I said, it, it was so bizarre because out of all the states and all the places that YouTube videos at that time were, it was so crazy to me to know that this man, John was filming like in the same areas I was hunting. And so that's really what drew me in just to watch him hunt local turkeys, basically the same areas I hunted. And Aside from John, because he really stuck to that niche of turkeys, which we'll, yep. we'll be getting into later, there was really no big game content at all in terms of Washington. Yeah, like you get like your one in a thousand like limited entry Blue Mountains elk hunt here and there. But it was just like a one one video. There was no series. There was no uh, consistent uploads to those those channels. And so I was like, you know what? Like, I'm just going to start doing this on my own. And the start of it wasn't even the idea that I wanted to share this to people or to build a brand it was simply the fact that i just wanted to watch it right so i'd go out 
I'd film whatever we hunted that day and I would just come back and I'd just watch it. And it quickly turned into not just my personal entertainment, but my family's entertainment. And long, long story short, over time, it just kind of evolved into the platform today. And you, you know, you get like 60,000 people that I've never even met before just watching the channel. Yeah. Yeah. You're, um, you know, your YouTube channel has, um, definitely, you know, grown to a point, um, you know, it's got great traction. Um, you put great material out. Um, and so, yeah, super happy for you. I'm glad it, it got to where it is, but let's, um, we're going to jump into the podcast. Just like we start these all, we're going to jump into some questions, uh, from some of our listeners. So these are questions we get from either social, email, uh, past episodes. If you want to submit your own questions, you can email us at ctd at phelpsgamecalls.com and myself and our uh, guests, we will do our best to answer those. Um, so the first question we're going we're gonna to throw at you, um, which we actually just kind of um, went over, but we're going to get a little more technical into your gear. Um, you know, We get this question a lot. You probably get it a lot. Uh, I want to start filming my own hunts. What equipment do I need? And, and what was your approach? You've already kind of mentioned you started with, you know, kind of an iPad. Um, what what would you recommend somebody that's, you know, and I think we maybe need to preface this because I didn't get any other information. Um, you know, somebody's just trying to share stuff to YouTube. Um, you know, what do they got to spend? What do they got to invest? Um, you know, what do they need to do to learn how to edit and, and so on? Yeah, I think uh, my my biggest advice is, dive in and start filming. I, I think there's a misconception that you need this camera and you need that camera, but the most important aspect is to just start. I think the best way to learn and improve on video production is experience. I know everybody today, I don't, it doesn't matter if you're old or you're new, we all have a phone of some sort that has a camera. And the cameras on our phones today are way better than some of the actual cameras like 10 years ago. And the phone's pretty limited, but like I said, you, you gotta just start because I think like there's really no better way to start than now. Like you can go on YouTube and you can search up like tips and tricks of little things you can do to improve your video production and stuff like that. But in my my in my experience, the most important aspect is uh, trial and error, right? You go out there, you come back, you learn what you did wrong or what you could do better. And it's just this, it's this constant cycle of going out there, filming, coming back, reevaluating going back out there and repeating that cycle. And so it's obviously good to have good cameras because it will just help your content that much better. But I think it's the idea of you give someone who's really experienced a cheap camera and you give a rookie with no experience a very expensive camera, the person with experience will most likely outproduce a higher quality video than the guy that just picked up a super expensive camera. Again, I'm not saying that if you, if you can't afford a good camera, get it clearly like it'll help you in the long run but i think it's the, it's just the idea that don't wait on certain camera or think that you need a certain camera to get into it because a lot of people today do they just film on their phones and they're way more successful than i am yeah no and that that's my advice is if you want to do it um just just get started um get what you can afford uh, you know, you start reviewing cameras and everybody will say, you know, the, the $5,000, you know, the, the new Canon, 
um, you know, R8 or, you know, this or that. And you're like, well, shoot, I can't afford that. I'm not going to be able to film my hunts. Go get the cheapest DSLR you can. Or like you said, even if we've all got a phone, like use your phone, um, you know, if, if that's your plan and goal, just, just get started. And then you'll learn along the way when you go to edit your stuff, you're like, oh shoot, I should have gotten these shots or I should have filmed more at camp or I should have did this and that. And you'll just learn and eventually come up with your own style. But, um, little off topic question, but something that I, I, we get asked a lot and I thought, um, you might be able to add your own, um, you know, two cents in and, and I think we're on the same page. Um, get something, get some sort of camera, um, get some sort of editing program and just get started, um, is the most important. And then you can change and upgrade your gear at a later point. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty of that route through trial and error is it really makes you learn about yourself, your style and what works best for you. You know, there's all sorts of hunting channels on YouTube now and, Almost all of them are different style, but they've all really achieved success with their own unique style, right? Like you just watch my stuff compared to like other hunting channels. I have my own style, but we're all relatively successful in our own ways. Yep. Yep. For sure. So uh, we're going to, we're going to switch gears here. We're going to go back into our, our topic today. Um, we're going to talk Turkey. Turkey's, um, you know, a, a, we'll shoot. It's only two months away um, from our youth season here in Washington. So it's, it's getting a lot closer than, um, you know, that we think we're, so we're going to jump into some questions. Um, you know, a lot of times we get, uh, you know, roost questions. Um, my question for you, do you roost birds at night? And if so, what's your go-to method, um, as far as calling and, uh, how you go about roosting birds and figuring out where they're at? You know, like this is all depending on the hunt and living in Washington. I don't get to say this very often, but we have some amazing turkey hunting. Like, with high turkey numbers, I hardly roost nowadays because I know I can find them at almost any time of the day and still kill one. I can't really say that to any other species in Washington, exhibit A, elk. I can't yeah. really say that with elk. But with turkeys, like, dude, there's so many turkeys, at least in the Northeast region. I'm not talking about just Washington in general. Northeast Washington particularly. I mean, every year, like, over 70% of the total harvest in the state comes from northeast washington right and yeah. so i live pretty much in northeast washington that's my that's my backyard and so when it comes to roosting if i do roost because i feel like i i just want to do it for fun it's actually a, a lot more simple than people think because one there's so many turkeys to go around and it's hard to miss them but my most common method is i just get to a vantage point whether it's on a ridge or uh, just on a logging road where i can hear distance and I actually don't even call. I'll just sit there and I'll just listen because turkeys are very vocal. So as they're flying up to roost or they're just hopping from branch to branch to go to roost, they will actually gobble on their own. And yeah. so you really don't have to do anything. You just let them speak for themselves. But in the case when you deal with slightly more pressure turkeys, which often occurs in the later season, like let's say like mid-May to late May, if they're not vocal, I will often resort to an owl call. Uh, just to give them a little bit more kick if they're not responsive. Or the other thing I will do is I will imitate a roosting hen. But the only time I imitate a roosting hen is if I know that where I am standing right there is a good spot where I can set up for the morning. Because turkeys, they're as dumb as they might seem, they can pinpoint your location to to your step. Like yep. you, you throw out a call, they will know exactly where you are. So the only time I will imitate a roosting hen is if I know that I can set up that spot. So, for example, if I, there's a gobbler across the ridge and I'm, a, I'm on a ridge across from him, I'll just tell him, hey, I'm a hen. I'm roosting here on this ridge tonight. I'll come back in that or I guess I'll come back the following morning 
and pretend that I'm that hen that roosted the night before, waking up, flying down. Because when you do that, it just lowers the suspicion of a turkey, right? If if you didn't tell him you were there the night before and all of a sudden the next morning, there's all of a sudden there's a turkey there. Sometimes it can throw up the red flag, especially if you're dealing with pressured gobblers. But yep. in terms of roosting, that's pretty much like the whole nu- uh, nutshell about how I go about roosting birds. Gotcha. Yeah, and some of that uh, uh, research that our buddy Mike Chamberlain um, at the University of uh, Georgia, the turkey lab there, um, some of the research he do, does is that you know, you call um, and that turkey may not come into your setup then, but he will come back to that exact location you know, in three to four hours. That turkey has a decent memory and he's got pinpoint accuracy on where you were at. And many times Mike Chamberlain's research has shown that that, that turkey knows where you were. He's busy with hens, but he will come back later. So I think the same can be said like he's you know, on the roost, um, he will know if there was a hen that should have been there the night before, and he'll know if she should be in that tree when he wakes up, you know, and uh, to add to your roosting birds at night, I like to do it just because it makes me feel a little bit more like I'm in the game or I'm being, you know, I'm interacting with the, with the turkeys. Um, I, I always refrain from using a, a coyote yip um, or a howl in the morning because I feel like it can, you know, disrupt birds make them very weary and cautious but at nighttime when they're in the tree we use a lot of coyote howls owl calls like you said um and i just love to get close to a roost tree and so by not using you know the hen calls like you said because you don't want to maybe throw that red flag if i use a locator call i can then you know pinpoint that bird try to get within you know 70 to 100 yards of its roost tree and make a make a play in the morning i haven't killed a whole lot of birds out of the roost usually we kill them you know when they've been on the ground for a while but i still love that that you know, excitement I get when you're sitting near a roost tree first thing in the morning, waiting for the fly down to see if you, uh, you know, made all the right decisions. But yeah, so predator, um, you know, coyote howls at night seem to work really good in, in Northeast Washington. I would hesitate to use them at any other time besides night roosting. Um, and then the only reason I like to do it is so I can, you know, get closer to a tree in the morning, be part of the action. Um, yeah, I'm right there with you, man. Like a lot of the birds that we set up on, on a roost, like, most of the times, like we don't kill that bird for some reason. At this point, I just like to call roosting false confidence because it makes you feel like you're going to kill them the next morning and then they just, yep. you don't kill a bird. You know, I, I don't know why, you know, you just think that you had it dialed, but then I don't know, man. Like most of my birds, like I said, or like you said, I kill them midday when they've already been on the ground for a couple hours. Yep. Yeah. You get that whole pattern of, you know, nins, uh, uh, the, the hens start to go nest, um, you know, get it, mm-hmm. leave those toms and then they're more callable. Um, but yeah. And, and I feel like that, you know, the, the subspecies of the Merriam's up in the Northeast corner, maybe are a little bit tougher off the roost where it seems like some of the Easterns we've got to hunt and some of the other species, um, are a little more huntable off the roost. Their, their roosts are a little bit more, um, you know, concentrated to, to good roost areas where these dang Merriams, they seem to just, you know, they do have, you know, roost sites that they like, but they can hop up at any given spot in any given night, you know, as long as there's trees around and, um, they're, they're not as, uh, um, you know, patternable, I guess it seems, um, maybe that, that adds to it or not. But, uh, so if you roost a bird that you haven't patterned, uh, how close do you like the setup and um, kind of ha- what, what's your decision making, you know, in the dark? Are you looking at some mapping software, trying to figure out where to, you know, pick the tree, where you think he's going to go on the ridgetop? Um, what's your play once you've uh, roost, uh, roosted the bird and, um, you know, figured all of that out? 
Yeah, so I would say that most of my birds that I roost, I, I don't pattern them. I'll just go out the night before and wherever they roost, I'll just make a game plan based off of where they are. Um, but yeah, I, uh, mapping software is huge nowadays. But the thing is, like, I've also just hunted here enough to the point where, like, I generally understand the landscape. And a lot of the places I, I hunt today, like, I've hunted for years. And so you just understand typically how they go. But in an, in the event where I don't know the pattern of these birds, typically where they flew up from, that's typically where turkeys will pitch. So if you knew where they flew up from, there's a good chance they're going to fly back down to that same exact spot. And so ideally for me, when it comes to the range, 75 yards is about the magic range for me. It's not so close where like, he can just pinpoint you and you're just in his comfort zone, but it's also not so far where he just has to feel like, oh, I got to make this hike to get to him. So the 75 to 100 yards, that's ideally what I would set up. And how I set up, it, it really depends on the terrain. Because, I mean, dude, these Miriams, they'll roost right next to a creek. They'll roost on the ridgetop. They'll roost right next to roads. Like, you really can't predict where they're going to be. And so it's really hard to narrow how I would set up because it's really so situation dependent. But the idea is how I set up is I just want to be able to set up in a way where the turkey can't see me until he's within range. So that often means that I also can't see the turkey, right? If I can't see the turkey, then that means the turkey can't see me either. Yep. So it doesn't really matter how you do it. I just want to make sure that by the time he can see me, he's already in in range. Because if he does see me at that time, it doesn't matter because he's not going to outrun a shotgun. The shotgun's way faster than he yep, is. Yep. Right. And so the one situation that I will uh, bring up regarding Northeast specifically, Northeast Washington, is roads. Because 95% of my turkeys probably come from a setup on a road because there's just logging roads everywhere up here. And so, one, roads are easy for us as hunters to hike, so it's easy to cover ground. And roads are very easy to use to how to predict how the turkeys will come in. I mean, if you're on a road, there's a good chance if the turkey's coming in, he's walking the road. And third, that's just what turkeys love. You know, they love to use roads as strutting grounds, travel corridors, and even feeding grounds. And so, typically how I do is I throw my decoy on the road. I'll either get up off the road or I'll go below the road, and I'll just let the turkey turn a corner that's typically how i set up on a road i want to set up next to a, a turn in the road that way the turkey has to turn that corner to see my setup or my decoy and usually by then like i said by the time he can see the decoy and he can see me he's already within range right so that's how i typically set up when it comes to a road but when it comes to like you're just on a random side of the ridge and it's just it, you really can't predict it you really just got to go based off of what he's feeling and what he's giving you Yep. Yeah. yeah but it's, it's, it seems to be a complete guess at that point. And, um, like I said, I seem to guess wrong a lot under the roost tree. Um, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's like you see him try to pitch to a flat spot. You see him try to pitch out to where, you know, it's more open when you know the tree they're in. And for some reason they always do the opposite. And then I've even tested it like, all right, I'm not going to touch a call all morning. Just like let him naturally pitch where he wants. It doesn't work. I'm like, all right, next time I'm going to call real lightly. He still doesn't pitch and just, yeah, just real, real limited luck um, out of the roost. But uh, no, I appreciate answering those listener questions. If you have a question of your own, you want me or my guest to answer, please email them or submit a, uh, a social message, um, whatever it may be. Um, email us at ctd at phelpsgamecalls.com. We'll do our best to get those answered here live on the show. So for today's episode, I've got my own questions um, to ask you here, um, specifically about 
Um, you know, hunting Merriam's, you know, you've mentioned Northeast Washington, Idaho, some of that open country, more mountainous country, probably compared to what the majority of the country gets when it comes to wild turkey hunting. Um, it's where I grew up turkey hunting in that Northeast Washington corner. Um, and it's a ton of fun because, you know, I, I, why I love the big thunderous gobbles of the Easterns compared to the, you know, the Merriam's little wheat gobbles and some of the differences between, between the birds. Like I love that it's, you get up in the morning and you got to lace your boots a little tighter when you're hunting Merriam's, you know, you gotta, you gotta maybe, um, you know, bring a little more water with you because you're going to run and gun these turkeys pretty good. You know, it's not going to be necessarily, you know, sitting, I'm going to say this for me hunting public land, you're not going to get to necessarily sit on a, on an ag field edge, you know, that's kind of, um, you know, uh, your typical turkey hunts in, in some places. Uh, I just love that it's almost like hunting the mountains for elk, for mule deer, but you're up there chasing turkeys on ridge tops, and, and, and I absolutely love um, that style of uh, of turkey hunting. Um, but I, I'm curious to see if some of our where some of our strategies and um, techniques are, are similar, and then also to see if you have some different tactics that we um, that you utilize um, in that northeast corner that I'm not currently using, but. Uh, before we jump into to my questions for you, it's always fun to kind of relive the past. Tell me real quickly about your first turkey and, and kind of your strategy you put put on that turkey and, and how you killed it. Yeah, the truth is I probably at this time didn't even have a strategy because I didn't even know what I was doing, but I somehow killed a turkey. Um, <clears throat> but I don't even know what year this was. This was well over a decade ago. Um, but I'll, I'll go to the year before I killed my first one because that kind of leads up to the year I actually shot mine. So the year before I sh- killed my first turkey, it was during youth season, and I actually missed a tom at 25 yards in this exact spot. I don't know how I missed it, but 25 yards, turkey just took off. I, I don't know what I did wrong. I just missed. And so the following year, it was, it was youth season again, and, uh, you know, you kind of go back to that spot because first off, like that tom that I missed, that was the first turkey I've ever shot at, and when you shoot something like that, you just have this built up confidence in that little spot. And so naturally I was just like, I want to go back to that spot. So it was my cousins and myself. And we, again, like I said, we went back to that spot out of redemption because we also knew that that little spot where I missed that Tom, there was a roosting area like 200 yards below where I actually shot the Tom. So we went the night before and this weekend was pouring rain. Like it was horrible. And so we got up before daylight and the rain was still going and it was pouring. Everything was soaking wet. And we pretty much went back to that same general area where I missed a Tom last year. And so sure enough, we get to that spot where uh, we were last year and we looked down below us like 200 yards and we spot a Tom and three hens. And like I said, like the rain is just pouring down at this point. So even we were miserable, but the turkeys looked like they were even more miserable. I mean, they just went through a whole night of rain and now they're trying to dry off but then there's no sun because it's still pouring rain and so turkeys were wet we were wet and it was just miserable conditions for a turkey hunt and so at least you know that's how it's looked at right when it's often raining people often refer uh rainy conditions as poor turkey hunting but today it was somehow the opposite for us so anyway we we spotted tom and three hens about 200 yards below in this little flat below us and my cousin just starts calling because that's that's what turkey hunters do and so surprisingly, this Tom was actually really vocal, but he just wouldn't leave his hens. I mean, this was like early April, you know, hens are still with Toms and stuff like that. And so we sat there for like an hour in the rain, just calling to this Tom and he would, he was very vocal. Like every time we called, he would gobble and he would even gobble on his own, but he 
just wouldn't leave his hands. And so my cousin David and I, we eventually like just decided like, let's, let's scoot a little bit closer. So we moved down like another 50 yards without him seeing us. And we were just like, you know what, let's set up here because there's no way we can get any closer. And so we scoot 50 yards closer and we sat there for like another 30 minutes, just yelping away at this Tom. And this Tom again, like just kept galling, but he just wouldn't leave his hands. And so I don't even know how long it was, but maybe like another hour on top of that, like that Tom finally just decided like, okay, like I got to go. And so we literally watched this Tom break off from his three hands and he just starts walking up towards us. And he's not strutting because he's, he's wet. He's just casually walking his way up towards us. And where we're set up, it's on a small ridge with just like small pine trees here and there. And so he eventually walks to the left. Basically, he's going to walk up the spine of the ridge. But as he's coming that route, I, I can't see him anymore. And so he also stops calling because we also stopped calling because we knew he was on his way. So we didn't want to just keep calling for him. And so as a rookie hunter, not seeing a turkey and not hearing him gobble, you know, you have a lot of second thoughts in your head and you, it, it just feels like forever. And so little did I know this turkey, he was actually drumming and spitting the whole way. But at that time, I didn't know what drumming and spitting was. So I didn't even know what to listen for. So I kept bugging my cousin. I was, <laughs> kept asking him. I was like, dude, is he coming? Like, like, where's this turkey? It, it feels like forever. My cousin, like, dude, like, stop like he's coming like he's right there like he's on his way because my cousin at that time he knew what drumming and spitting was but i didn't yep. and so he's like dude like just just wait dude like he's gonna show up he's gonna show up and so i'm sitting there drenched fingers numb from the cold and what felt like an eternity he finally pops out into this one shooting lane about 20 yards away and we pretty much see each other right at the same time but the difference was i knew what he was but he didn't know what i was so he stuck around just long enough to you know kind of poke his head out like what is that thing in the bush but my fingers were so cold. I remember going to pull the trigger twice and the gun wouldn't go off. And I remember looking at my cousin to ask him, why isn't the gun firing? And so I come back to the gun and this turkey's still just standing there. And I'm trying to pull the trigger, but I can't. So as I'm trying to lift uh, this gun to the side to look at the, uh, the safety to see if it's on fire. The gun goes off. Oh, and no. Yeah, as the gun goes off, I look at the turkey. The turkey just starts flopping. So I somehow miraculously got the turkey without really aiming at the turkey. Why, why twisting and, your gun over to look at yeah, it? Why, it? Yeah, as I was twisting my gun, like the gun went off. And I just remember I looked up at the turkey and I just saw his right wing go up and he just starts tumbling down this ridge. And I just remember I just yelled, I got him. And my cousin stands up. He's looking over because he clearly saw that I wasn't aiming when I shot the when, when the gun went yeah. off. So he looked, he, he jumps up. He's looking to make sure the turkey's actually down. And sure enough, the turkey was just flopping down the ridge. And so I don't know how I got it. But I somehow got him. <laughs> yeah, a little, little bit of a story to your your first bird there for sure. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, my first bird, I I didn't even use a call as much as I'd love to say I called the thing in. Um, I was struggling. We we kind of were in that part of the season back then. Um, you know, late April, it seems like those toms just get on. You know completely hand up won't do anything we don't have enough hens sitting all day and it's just that like that weird time where it's not early enough it's no longer late enough where all the hens are leaving and uh, you just couldn't call to them so i i just like shamelessly listened to gobbles and did the big sneak and used terrain and uh popped around a corner and shot my first uh tom but um, no your your story is a little more eventful than than mine for <laughs> sure
O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on FishingBooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at FishingBooker.com to book your trip today. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way that they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. So I'm going to jump into the questions I have for you now, Simone, and, and kind of kind of um, just just go over. These are kind of just the general um, turkey hunting questions, but see how we can kind of tailor this to Northeast Washington and some of the, the tactics you use um, you know, to, to be successful year in and year out. And you're not only successful for yourself, but I know, um, you, know you, you take a lot of other guys um, and, and, and gals out and, and find them a bunch of success. So I'm really, really um, you know, interested to pick your brain here. Um, so let's say you you know just like you said earlier I, I've I've had the same results I can typically go out onto most pieces of public in Northeast Washington and get a bird to gobble. So once you get that bird gobbling, um, what is your approach? Are you going to get as tight as you can? Are you going to set down like what's the magic distance you like to get to? And then what's your progressions on calling? Yeah, it it really comes down to just the mood of the gobbler, how far I am, and hunting pressure. Like, that's the three factors, right? What the turkey's feeling, how far I am from him, and what's the hunting pressure like in that area. And like I said, it's such a situational thing, but I'll just try my best to keep it, like, just streamlined. But because the thing is, 
lots of gobblers, like when when a turkey gobbles, right? Even if he's gobbling a lot, it generally means, it, or it can mean one of two things, right? If he's gobbling a lot, he's super interested. He's running, and everybody wants that, right? The other thing is he's gobbling a lot, but he's hung up. And so, one thing I've learned over the years is you really just have to learn to read the turkey. And there's really no good way to explain how to read a turkey besides just spending time out there, putting yourself in a bunch of situations, and really just getting that natural feel for how you can make a move. Because a lot of times when I go turkey hunt, I really just wing it. I, I don't really have a game plan. I just go based off of what the turkey's giving me. So, for example, if we work in a bird and I know he's coming in, he's just pounding every call I make, I'll play around with him uh, in terms of call. Because one, I just like to hear them gobble, right? If he's hammering you and he's running in, I'll just I'll just call a lot because especially if I'm taking somebody else who's new, hearing that gobble gets the gets them excited and it uh, makes them patient. When a gobble goes, when a gobbler goes silent, and you're taking a new guy out and they stop gobbling. A lot of times they get very antsy and they they get impatient, which that's yep. probably the number one factor why people don't shoot birds. They just get impatient. But when it doesn't matter how the turkey's coming in, whether he's coming in gobbling his head off or coming in very very silent, very cautious, I will eventually stop calling when he gets close and let him come find me. Because like I said earlier at the beginning of the podcast, turkeys, they might not seem smart, but every time you're making a call, they are pinpointing exactly where that call is coming from. And so typically what I do is I use a decoy. And so I make sure I stop calling before he's able to get visual of the actual setup. So what I do is I typically put a decoy like 20 yards away from my am. So once I stop calling, if he pops up, he looks at the decoy because I've given him maybe like a minute or two of silence. It makes realistic sense for that hen to have moved 20 yards from where I last called. So it just makes it more realistic for him to approach it. But on the, on the flip side, when it says, do you call just enough or keep him over the, uh, over the top? Obviously, if he's coming in, uh, you can pretty much do whatever, right? But if he's very cautious, you really have to play around with how much you're calling and how you're calling to him. Because especially later in the season, when you're dealing with birds that have been shot at, they've been set up on before, you can't really just do whatever because they will read you and pick you apart. And so what I typically do is if if a bird is gobbling, but he's not super over the top, like the first example I give you, I'll, I'll give him just enough calls to make him somewhat interested but i won't always be calling enough to the point where he's just like okay you come to me because what i've learned over the years is when you as a hen typically that's how i call i I imitate a hen if a hen is more excited than the gobbler a lot of times what that leads to is that that leads to a gobbler hanging up because if he if he wants you more than you want him he will come running in but if you want him more than he wants you a lot of times what he's going to do is he's going to force you to go to him so you kind of have to play that balance between yep. am I calling too much or am I calling not enough? And so, again, it really is a situational thing. And that's just dependent on the situation of the turkey and what, whatever situation you get yourself into. Yeah. And, and early, I've always figured that early in the call in, like we're going to you're going to establish kind of the ground rules, right, uh, of this call in. Um, if, if he's hammering, you know, say you make a hen yelp and he hammers you. And then you maybe, you know, go quiet for a minute, but he gobbles two or three more times. You're like, all right, is he excited where he's at? Or does that mean he's really excited and coming to me? And so now as a turkey hunter, we're now listening like, 
is he actually getting closer? Is he closing some of this distance? Or is he sitting there spinning around, you know, gobbling towards me? So it sounds like he's getting closer and then he's turning away like he may be hinned up. And so you're trying to use like all of this information to figure out what's going on. Um, you know, and in, in the case where that bird's gobbling and getting closer, you're like, well, that's the easy one, right? We don't have to, we can, like you said, you can call as much as you want or as little as you want. And the thing's going to come pinpoint your location. Um, it's the ones in between that seem to, to kind of hang up that seem to kind of answer you occasionally and seem to kind of gobble on their own occasionally and then don't answer your calls are the ones that really kind of give us the fits where we're like, well, shoot, what do we throw at them now? Do we need to go silent for five minutes? And then does our our, our uh, hen call work again? Or you know, do we need to get really excited with some cutting? And that's just where I, I think experience and then kind of just that gut feel comes in at times. Um, like, all right, did, did the cutting work? Did it not work? Did the silent treatment work? Did it not work? Um, and you just have to make your your you know your future decisions based on what you've you know got from that bird um, you know throughout the calling. You're, you're trying to put all this information kind of into the pot and boil down what's going to work on this bird, and and there are times where it's just not going to work. Exactly, pretty um, much nailed it. Yep. So. And during the calling, we've just talked about, you know, calling a lot, calling a little bit, going silent, um, you know, that bird being able to, I've always assumed uh, before I get into this next question, I am going to throw this bit of information out in the instance, you've mentioned it multiple times, but I'm going to, I'm going to reiterate it because it's, it's important. If you know that that bird answers your hen call, like you let out a seven note yelp and that thing is right on top of you. You know that that was in response to your hen calls. At that point, he knows exactly what tree you're sitting under. Um, so don't be worried. Like you said, you can go silent and maybe that hen will move. But at the time you make the call, he makes a call. I just assume that he now knows exactly where I'm at. It, you know, So I at least got that bit of information. I think it's important to know and, and the, the research you know, with with GPS callers um, and, or GPS trackers on these birds, um, the research shows that that thing knows exactly where you're sitting and he will eventually go back to it once he loses his hens. Um, so when that bird goes silent, um, you know, and, and I'm talking silent, silent, how long are you going to wait this thing out? Um, and I know it's always dependent. And then what's your play going to be um, after that? So, you know, you're calling the bird, he's gobbled six, eight, 10 times. Seems like he's closing the distance and he's interested. And then you just get, the typical silent treatment that we've all we've all been a part of, we've all we've all had to deal with. Yeah, I think um, I think when you say silent treatment, I think you can draw like a like a bunch of branches under it. So I'll give a couple of different scenarios, right? So one scenario, which is very common that people don't realize, is he's coming in, he's gobbling, and all of a sudden you just don't hear him anymore. So we would refer that to as he's go silent. That what this often means is he sees your decoy or he sees your general area where the sound is coming from. So that means he's made it there. He's just now poking his head up and he's just looking at the situation because the thing with gobbling is it's often a communication between two turkeys who cannot see each other. Once the, once the gobbler shows up and if you have a decoy out, if he sees your decoy or he sees a hen, he really doesn't have a need to gobble anymore. I mean, like the communication between a gobble and a, hel a hen yelping has brought them to into one area. And at this point, if you're a Tom, it's not about I'm gobbling anymore. It's about, okay, there's the hen. How can I look as good as I can to this hen? So what happens is when they come in and they're silent, that means he sees your decoy and he's just trying to strut. He's trying to look as good as he can for the hen. This is what happens with a lot of, 
uh, situations is people who don't I, who can't identify drumming and spitting. This is where they screw up because the turkey's already here. They just can't see him and they don't think he's here because he's not gobbling. But like the like I will say later, turkeys are always drumming and spitting, no matter how pressure they are. They're always drumming and spitting. So if you can learn to identify that, even if he's not gobbling, when they're close, it's so distinct. You can't like you just can't not hear a drum and a spit. So that's one scenario of what happens when he quote unquote goes silent. He shows up, he sees your decoys, he's now just putting on a show. Another thing is especially in the Northeast region, we live in, we hunt in mountainous terrains and the landscape is so oddly shaped that sound can just travel very weird. And so, for example, if I'm on a ridge and there's a turkey on another ridge and he's gobbling, right? Sounds like he's just hammering all my calls. Because a lot of times that terrain is so mountainous, what happens is a lot of times turkeys will have to take longer routes to get to your setup. So what I've had happen is I'm just standing face to face with the turkey he's on another ridge i'm on another ridge but instead of coming straight down his ridge and up my ridge he's just going to take this logging road that's going to loop all the way to the back side of the valley to get to me so what happens is he's sounding like he's going farther away which he is but that doesn't necessarily mean he's lo losing interest he's just taking the path of least resistance to get to me even if that means it's a longer route so what happens sometimes is he gets into like this little this little pocket where the sound just doesn't travel as good so because you can't hear it, we just say, oh, he went silent on us. He's not he's not really interested. But no, it's he's still gobbling. He's just on his way. You just can't hear him at that moment. I've had this happen so many times. Just last year, I took my buddy Steve out. We this bird was hammering us. He was like, he was probably like half a mile away. And it got to a point where we couldn't hear him anymore. And my buddy Steve was like, dude, like he's he's gone. And I told him, like, dude, with how he was hammering us, like the first 15 minutes, there's no way he's not gonna show up. 20 minutes later, sure enough, there's turkey shows up 10 yards, smokes him, right? It's like, <laughs> it's things like that, that go a long way. So when we say they're giving us the silent treatment, there's a lot of different ways and a lot of different scenarios that you have to keep in the back of your mind. Yep, for sure. Um, yeah, and there's, there's always, you know, that, it, it's tough. And, and that's where, like you said, you have to draw from the experience you've had with that bird prior to the silent treatment, and you've got to make some decisions on whether that bird's still coming or whether you know he went away with a hen. A lot of it is, you know, was he was his last calls going away? Was he coming towards you? And then you have to make your decision, you know, based on that. Um, great, great information there. Um, so we've talked about it. Most of the Northeast, it, it can be very brushy, but in my opinion. Um, you know, it, it's fairly open, you know, mountainous, like we've said, it, it kind of lends itself to that run and gun style of turkey hunting. Um, I already know your answer to this because um, you've mentioned it earlier. Um, my question was, do you use a decoy or not? And, and you've said you use it in roads a lot, but but what's your thought process on decoys? Do you use them on every setup? Are there times where you won't use a decoy and kind of go into to that for me? Yeah, I think... Uh... I can definitely get away now with, with my experience now. I'm not saying I'm the most experienced, but with, with how I can read turkeys, I can often get away without using a decoy. The reason why I still use a decoy now is it really just helps me on the filming side of things. To be able to know where I can just leave the frame of my camera on the decoy, it's so much more, like it's less stress on me mentally rather than predicting where this turkey is going to come. Because a lot of times I self-film. So knowing that, okay, there's a decoy. I just got to put the camera on the decoy and just leave it on the tripod. It makes it a lot easier for me because I can really focus on just working this tom, because a lot of times they're they're going to show up to the decoy. Um, 
But the other thing is I often only use a Hende koi. I know some people like to use like a Tom or JT koi. I've never really found it to improve my chances. Uh, the other thing too is I just don't want to get shot by other people, you know? And so I just use one Hendy koi. That's typically what I do. But like I said, it's not really mandatory, but it really just helps me with my filming. Gotcha. Perfect. That makes makes a ton of sense. We've always, we used to use them a lot more, you know, set out, you know, two hens and a Jake on a lot of setups. And um, there were times where we would get picked off setting them up, you know, the turkey closed too quick or whatnot. And I would say the majority of the time we do, but when we do go back out and hunt some ag stuff and the turkeys can see for so long to get that like visual confirmation that, all right, there are turkeys down at the other end of the field that are making, you know, turkey noises, I, I feel is a little more effective versus like run and gun, um, you know, chasing turkeys around at times, it seems like. Um, we've elected to, we seem to not put out decoys as much. Um, we've used some, some live stuff for decoys at times. Um, but you know, they're, they're big and they're pain in the butt to carry around. Um, but, but they, they are effective in the, in, in the certain situations where that, you know, Tom that you're trying to call in can make a visual, um, it, it can, you know, change the game for us a little bit. Um, absolutely. So it's different than the silent treatment. Um, very often, especially I, I kind of gave the scenario earlier, you know, that that mid-April to late April when birds are just on, you know, lockdown, they're they're hung up, they're hinned up, very, very uh you know, difficult to call in, but they will play the game for a bit and, and you know, that bird hangs up. You know, we've we've seen them get in their strut zones, um, you know, hour, hour and a half after fly down. They establish where they want to be. The hens lead them to where they want to feed. And that bird kind of gets, you know, hung up in his, his strut zone or he may come part way, but he's not willing to leave those hens completely because, you know, he's got the for sure thing. What do you have any out of the box, um, you know, strategies or tactics for that? Or do you have just a, a strategy that works when those birds hang up? They're still active. They're still calling, but they just will not break, um, you know, either a certain terrain feature, a certain uh, topo feature, or they just flat out won't go any farther away from their hens. Yeah, I think the most common uh, technique when it comes to a gobbler that's hung up because of a hen is to start talking to the hen, right? That, like the reason why that gobbler's not coming in is because he's hung up with the hen. Like he's he wants to stay with the hen. So if you can get that hen that he's hanging out with to come into you, I mean, like that's that's textbook, right? So that's like the most common thing is like. People, especially rookies, and myself included when I first started, all I wanted to do was talk to the Tom, but it's like, that's not always going to work. If if he's hung up the hen, start talking to the hen. Because if you bring in the hen, that Tom's going to be right behind her. It doesn't matter who you're talking to, because at the end of the day, you just want that Tom to be, to be in range so you can shoot him. Yep. But aside from uh, the situation where he's hung, uh, hung up with the hen, if this is just a lone bird, and he comes up to your setup, you're calling him, he comes up, and he's just like, 60, 70 yards, just right outside shotgun range. There's typically three reasons why a lone Tom will hang up. First off, which is the worst one, is they see you. He, he's hung up because he's looking at you, which oftentimes from there, there's not much you can do. You, you can just hope and pray that he's going to walk a couple more steps, but oftentimes he's just going to turn away and walk around. The second scenario is he comes up. He doesn't see you, but he just doesn't like the... He just doesn't like what he's seeing. Like it just something feels off to them. So when it's something like this, it's 50-50. He might close another 10, 15 yards, or he might just turn around and leave. The third one is they're not seeing what they're supposed to be seeing. If you imitate a super hot hen in this open field and he comes up and you don't have a decoy out, 
He comes up, he looks at it. He's like, where's this hen at? He's going to hang, hang out because he's going to take his time. He's going to observe where this supposed hen is supposed to be. So those are typically the three reasons why a lone bird will hang up. So typically what happens when he doesn't like what he's seeing or he's not seeing what he's supposed to do or supposed to be seeing is I just go silent. I want him to build up that that curiosity to be like, okay, I don't see what I'm seeing. I don't really know what's going on here. I need to go investigate. Because at this point, there's not much you can do. If you're going to give a call out and he's already within 60, 70 yards, again, he's going to pinpoint your location and he's just going to stare right at where the call is coming from. And if you're not a decoy, you don't have a decoy next to you, there's a good chance you're not calling him in. And so this is, you know, when that's why it's such a hard topic because when a bird hangs up, it's like, there's really no right or wrong way to go about it. It really is. You got to go with your gut instinct in that situation. Yep. Yep. No, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that one and, and real similar to what, to what we do there. Um, we've, we've touched on this a little bit too, a little bit in uh, our earlier conversation. Um, most of the public land we get to hunt in Northeast Washington, whether we're you know a mile from the gate, whether we're right along a country road, whether we're along a logging road, these birds get a lot of pressure. Um, why we do have a great turkey population that's thriving currently um they are the birds still get pressured right we have a lot of you know washington state as a whole has a, a, I don't want to misspeak but we have a very high um hunter count you know a very high number of hunters that still hunt spring turkey um, so we do have pressured birds do you have any other tactics you like to use specific to pressured birds um, on this public land yep so basically three tips First one is I work them a little slower and I just give them more time. Pressure birds, they take their time. They're more cautious. The second one is I work turkeys from a different angle. Everybody knows that gate that everybody parks at and goes in from one direction. You can use that as entrance, but dude, like loop around the mountain, come in from the backside, come in from the east, come in from the west, work him from a different angle because a pressure bird knows the most common entrance, which is through the gate. And that's typically where he's found the most danger, right? If everybody's coming and calling in from the same direction, he already knows what's up. You come in from the backside or or a different angle, he might be like, oh, maybe this is actually a legit uh, turkey. Or the third one is instead of full-blown yelps, I just resort to clucks, more subtle calls, you know, because at this point in season May, late May, every turkey knows what a full-blown yelp means. Yep, yep. That's that's one thing I was going to add and I kind of had dialed up for pressured birds is, you know, everybody in the world can go out and use a seven to nine note yelp. Um, it's it's our go-to calls for the most part. But that bird has heard every variation of a seven to nine note yelp on a mouth diaphragm, on a pot call, on a box call. They've heard it. And if you know those birds have heard it, let's go to clucks. Let's go to some subtle purring. Let's go to some real, like, you know, real short two to three note yelps. And uh, I learned this from my buddy Chris Parrish and, and Randy Milligan. It's just that subtle, realistic sounds can sometimes help you out on on those pressured birds. And so that's what we like to do, at least from a calling tactic. And then I do like your point, like, all right, if there's a bird up a canyon, everybody's going to approach halfway up the ridge because that's where the road's at. You know, so in that turkey's mind, like, hey, guess what? You know, another hunter's coming down the road. Let's let's cross the creek in the bottom and, and come at him, and, you know, get a top or let's go around the ridge. Let's approach him differently um, and just, you know, change up the thing that the bird's seen, you know, multiple times uh, throughout the year or, or last year or whatnot. Um, so you're getting ready. 
Um, it's opening day of season. What calls do you have on you? And, and, and what are the calls that are going to get some use? And what are the calls that are maybe going to be a little bit more specialty? Yeah, I go pretty simple, man. I have three calls on me all the time, and that's pretty much it. I have a crow call. I have a, a reed, diaphragms, and I have a slate or a pot call. That's pretty much it. That's all I carry. A crow call, it, it's naturals, right? We have crows here all the time. They're always, they're very active in the spring. That's my locator call. And uh, it's really good because, one, it's natural. But the downside with it is it's uh, it's very loud. You, you can't really do a soft crow call. So the downfall with a loud crow call is if there's a gobbler that's really close to you and you just let them have it, a lot of times it'll just spook the turkey, which that doesn't work in your favor. Yep. The second one is an actual turkey call, which is a diaphragm. It's, it's more difficult to use, which is the downfall. But if you can get even just proficient with it, it's really good to have because you're hands-free. You don't have to worry about uh, not having your hand on the trigger when the turkey shows up or anything. Uh, the, and the third one is a pot call. It's just easier to use, but the downfall, obviously, is it requires two hands. So depending on what I'm doing, if I'm the hunter, I'm the camera guy, I'll have a reed in my mouth all the time. If I'm just helping someone out, pot call because it's way easier. And, and I'm personally better at a pot call than I am with a diaphragm. Gotcha. That makes yeah, I, I'm fortunate. You know, we end up carrying probably more calls than we ever use. Um, very similar. I will throw a box call in, um, you know, in in areas where, you know, it's big country. I feel like sometimes that box call um, can carry maybe a little bit more. It's got more of that high, shrill pitch. Um, and then once again, if, if we are in an area with pressure birds, it might be something they haven't heard as much of. Um, you know, similar to you, I carry a few, uh, a few diaphragms. Um, a pot call and then you know the only thing i may have uh, i found that a pileated woodpecker works really really good in that northeast corner um and so i'll typically have some sort of a, a woodpecker call it's just that real high pitch you know startles them it seems to get um you know at times when the crow call doesn't work that uh that pileated woodpecker seems to really get them fired up um, so that's really the only difference. I, I might carry a box, but there are times where it's just like, I don't want to carry the box around. I don't want to worry about mm -hmm. it. You know, especially if it's raining, um, you know, you're dealing with two different woods that if, if it gets wet, it's useless anyways. Um, I'll just elect to put that thing in the truck and leave it there. And, uh, you know, I would even be able to, if, it, if it's raining, I'm probably just going to use my mouth diaphragms anyways and leave, might as well leave, you know, even the pot calls in the truck. Um, We've we've talked about. I'm just going through our my questions here. We've we've hit this one enough on um, hind up birds and, and that are hard headed, um, long distance locating. Uh, in Northeast Washington, you're you're hunting ridge top to ridge top. You're hunting what I would even consider like drainages. A lot of these walk in areas that we hunt, um, DNR uh, walk in areas. There, it's big mountainous country ridges um, in between. Um, we talked a little bit about this on our, uh, on our roosting, but let's say you, you strike up a bird on the opposite Ridge. Um, how do you kind of make the decision to stay where you're at and try to call that bird to you or go after them? What are some of those, uh, cues or kind of indicators that, that let you decide what to do? Yeah. The first thing is it's just how desperate I am. You know, if it's, if it's been a struggle and that's the only bird I've struck up, like I'm going after him. But if I know there's other gobblers closer to me, I'll just keep, I'll keep tabs on that bird. I just won't go after him right then and there because I mean, if there's birds closer to you, obviously, why would you not go to the yeah. closer birds? But the the idea is like if if there's a lot of distance in between us, and I'm trying to gauge is it worth my hike to go over there? It really goes back to what I said earlier. You have to really get good 
at estimating the mood of a turkey, right? If if he's far away, but he's just hammering you, just showing so much interest, it's very hard for me to turn a bird like that down. But if he's far away and he's like giving me like half-efforted gobbles and just not really showing interest, then I'm just, I don't even go after him. I'll just find another bird. Gotcha. Yeah. Then there's there's a lot of times if you kind of like you said desperation. If you know there are other birds in the area, like sometimes, especially if my approach wouldn't be good, or if you know that thing could potentially pick me up and it's a risky move, um, and I know there are other birds in there, I won't risk it at that point. But I'll keep it in the back of my mind, like, hey, there is a bird that's working that ridge over there. Um, you, know, you can always use it as kind of your backup plan. But yeah, similar to you, like I don't want to bust over there potentially you know, not find the bird that's just, you know, right around the corner on my side um, at the risk of, of losing it. So, yeah, it, it depends on the situation um, and when you're going to, uh, you know, go over there. In closing, if you had, what's your one tip you feel would give a turkey hunter better odds in finding success this year? My one tip, if I had to tell them, is hunt all day. You know, I've killed birds from first light to last light and everything in between. In fact, I'd say I'd kill more birds midday when most hunters have left the woods or napping. You know, turkeys, like I said, turkeys, first thing they do when they fly down, the first thing they do or typically do is they breed. So when they're breeding, it's hard to pull a tom away from the flock. But, you know, once they're done at first light breeding and toms are alone because the hens are tending their nests, like, dude, like, from nine to three o'clock, you just don't know when you're gonna strike up a super hot tom. So if that's the if, if there's one tip that I could give to them, hunt all day. Yep. No, I'm I'm the same way. Growing up and you know hunting over there in Northeast Washington, I got I got to hunt with some locals and hunt with some people that have been doing it for a long time, and it was even comical to the point where it frustrated me. They wouldn't get up you know, at four o'clock in the morning and, and go sit on a roost tree and whatnot, they would hang out at camp, cook themselves nice breakfast once it got daylight, wait for all of us young guys that were full of piss and vinegar earlier in the morning <laughs> to come back to camp and then they would go out and kill the birds that we were hunting. Um, you know, it's just it's just nature and the way it works, right? It's those those toms fly down with a group of hens, that hen will go lay eggs, go sit on her nest and leave. And then that Tom's a lot more callable at that point. And so, no, I'm with you. Um, with that said, I think you're still punching the time clock, whether you're out there in the morning and night. And, and we all know that you can kill a bird first thing in the morning, um, but you can also kill a lot of birds midday. Um, so similar to, to what you said, uh, you know, more time in the woods is always going to lead to more success. And uh, I'm, I'm fully on board with what you said there. I really appreciate having you on the podcast today. How can people find out more about you and where can they find your stuff? Yeah, so I primarily operate on YouTube and Instagram. My YouTube is just Samong Outdoors, S-A-M-O-N-G Outdoors. And on Instagram, it's S-Y underscore outside. Perfect. Well, uh, yeah, like I say, you're doing cool stuff. I love your YouTube channel. Um, you know, super humble, modest, um, in my opinion, doing it the right way and uh, representing hunters um, in the light that we need to. So, uh, you know, uh, proud of you. Like I say, got to watch you for the last four years. Really like what you're doing. Um, it's an honor to have you on here and uh, good luck this uh, spring. Um, sounds like we're going to hook up and maybe do some turkey hunting together. So uh, everything we talked about here, maybe we'll be able to put it to use uh, here this spring and uh, document it all. Absolutely, man. I'm looking forward to it. 
Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. 